Well, good morning. I'm glad to see all of you here today. I uh, had an opportunity to go to Houston and go be with the Fleming family and friends for the funeral that they had yesterday, and uh, it makes you think more seriously about life and about the temporary nature of life when you go to a funeral. You know the the, I almost call him the Apostle Solomon. He wasn't an apostle, but Solomon, the wise man, said it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because of what you think about. You know, when you go to a party, you're just thinking about having fun. When you go to a funeral, you're thinking about meeting the Lord. And it's different the way you live your life when you're thinking about having a party or you're thinking about meeting the Lord, isn't it? It's different. And, you know, just like we talked about last time I spoke, when you come to church, the goal is not to be able to walk out of here and go, man, that was good. The goal is when you walk out of here, God, to look at you and go, that was good. You know, you're here to serve God. You're here to worship Him. You're here to please Him. And not just here, but in your life as you live every day in your life, right? We all struggle against sin. That's one of the things we're really, really open about here in this congregation is that sin is a fight. It's a struggle that we all have. And, you know, all of us at times will have some kind of sin in our lives that we'll fight against. We'll do really good for a while, and then maybe we don't do so good for a while. And, and uh, I was asked here a while back to put together a, a lesson on dealing with relapse when you fall back into sin, when you, you've made some progress and then you slip back into that. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? And you know, I don't, I don't think that's irrelevant to us. I think that matters to us. I think that can happen to anyone. The Bible says, let him that thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. You and I could fall, and many of us, all of us at times, have fallen back into things that we felt like we had progress over. You know, when you look in the Bible and you read the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, you look at a person like that. Do you know anyone that, that you think that describes? Does that describe you? Do you think this kind of person needs to go see a psychiatrist? You think this kind of person needs to go see a counselor all the time? No. No, because this kind of person is full of love and joy. These are all the kinds of things that a counselor is going to try to help you accomplish or have in your life. But this is what the Bible says that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a Christian. And when we talk about relapse, we're talking about habitual life-dominating sin. You know, we all have sins that we commit maybe occasionally or something happens. But I'm talking about habitual life-dominating sin. Well, what's habitual life-dominating sin? What would we call habitual life-dominating? Well, there's all kinds of things that can be habitual and life-dominating. You know, you look at that list and you can say, well, yeah, we see pornography could be, or uh, gambling could be, alcohol can be a life-dominating sin, it can control people. There's some other things up there you might go, well, I'm not sure why you put uh, internet up there. What's wrong with the internet? Well... It can be life-dominating. Do you all know anyone whose life is just dominated by Facebook or, or video games or things like that? It can be life-dominating. Anything that controls and dominates your life 
and takes your focus away from serving God can be that kind of a life-dominating thing. Now, in the psychological world, in the world you live in, when you go to college or you go to work, people who have life-dominating problems like this, they say, I have an addiction or I have a disorder. Because it's such a problem, our culture has created words to describe somebody who is dominated by a particular type of sin. They say, well, they're addicted. They're addicted to alcohol. You ever known anyone addicted to alcohol? You know, I did this. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you known people addicted to alcohol? I have. Have you known anyone who had what they would call a disorder? Someone like, you know, we here on this last screen, we had a, a list of a lot of different things. You might say stealing. I don't have stealing. I thought I had theft up there. Is stealing or theft a life-dominating sin? Uh, Actually, it may be on, yeah, it's on my next deal. Being a thief, is that life-dominating? Have you ever stolen anything? Ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? Yeah, I know you have. We all have. At some point in our lives, taken something that didn't belong to us, right? That's different than somebody who has a life-dominating sin of theft, isn't it? In fact, we've invented a word for life-dominating thief called kleptomania. Have you ever heard of kleptomania? That person's a kleptomaniac. You ever known anyone that told a lie? Did you ever tell a lie? Yeah. But have you ever known anyone that they would lie when the truth would suit them better? They just were pathological liars. They just lied all the time. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about life-dominating sin. I'm not talking about someone who gossips and gets caught up in a, some drama that's going on. One time. I'm talking about somebody that every time you meet them, they're going, Hey, you know what I heard? Hey, guess what? And they've always got something they want to talk about. They go, Hey, you know, I heard the other day. That's, that's life-dominating. And the reality is any sin you commit can become life-dominating. Any of them can. Any of them can take over and control you to where they are the primary dominating force in your life. So how do you tell if a sin's habitual and life-dominating in your life or in the life of someone you know? Well, the Bible says this. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. He says, if you see someone overtaken in a fault. Now, if you're around me very long, you're going to see me do something or say something that I shouldn't. That's just the way it's going to be. But that's different than saying, you know what, this guy's got a real problem with that, right? Those are different things, and that's what he's talking about here. He says, for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, if I see you overtaken in a fault, I'm supposed to go talk to you about it. That's what we're talking about when we call call this life-dominating habitual sin. It's something that dominates or controls and overwhelms this person to the point that they're overtaken. When a person can fairly be described by the sin, it's life-dominating. You know, it, uh, the illustration I used of getting drunk, being having an alcohol problem, okay? Sometimes someone gets drunk. That doesn't mean necessarily that you can fairly describe them as a drunkard. But there are people 
who have a problem with alcohol to the point that it's consistent, and you can describe them as a drunkard. Now, the, the vogue word is alcoholic, but the idea is the same. The Bible word is drunkard. If you can describe someone by their sin, then it's a life-dominating sin. If you can be described by your sin, then it's a life-dominating sin in your life. Um, if you actively seek opportunity to commit the sin, you know, we all get caught at times in situations where we commit sin. There are times that you've told something that wasn't the truth because all of a sudden you were in a jam and you were going to be embarrassed if you told the truth and everybody was going to... And so you wanted to change that. You wanted to get out of that so you didn't tell the truth. That's happened with you at some point in life. You've colored the truth in some way. That's different than someone who seeks opportunity to be dishonest. It's different for someone to be in a situation where they get caught in the drama of the moment and gossip and someone who loves gossip and they look for opportunity to cause drama and to promote drama and to be involved in that. It's different. Someone s denies but secretly loves the sin. Now, this isn't something you could see in someone else, but it's something you can see in yourself. You say, oh, no, I... And you talk like you don't like something when really inside you know you really, you really do like it. That's life dominating when it controls you, when it has a hold on you like that. When a person suffers in many areas of life because of the sin and they're still not willing to give it up, it's life dominating. You know, motivation is a very complex subject in the Scriptures to motivate people to do what's right and wrong. I remember years ago counseling, figuring out that, you know, there's answers to any problem except one, that's don't want to. And if you don't want to, there's nothing I can do to help you, right? Motivation is very, very challenging and difficult. And sometimes we use different uh, carrot and a stick, so to speak, in motivating people, right? We do that with our kids. You know, if you do real good on your report card, I'll give you $5 for every A you make or whatever. That's the carrot. Or, hey, you know, you, if you get an F, you get grounded and you lose your driver's license. Or that would be the stick, you know, and we try to use it both ways, right? But you'll know people, and maybe you in your own life, are willing at times to risk tremendous loss in order to commit a sin that you love. I've known people, I had a guy tell me one time, he said, listen, this guy had a wife and children. He said, until we started working on this, I would have given up my family for pornography. Really? Yeah, because that's how much of a hold it had on him and on his life. Sin be can become very, very dominating. And if you're in a situation where you're willing to suffer, you're willing to lose your job, lose your family, lose all these other things, that's a life-dominating sin, and it's, it's got control over you. You know, you can take your life and divide it into lots of different areas like this. But when we talk about a life-dominating sin, it's a, it's, a life that, or it's a sin that affects all the areas of a person's life. You take specifically alcohol, that's a good illustration. Does your alcohol affect your fun? Well, yeah, I drink some when I'm having fun, but it doesn't affect my family or my work or my church. Oh, yeah, if it's life-dominating, it does. 
and it will affect the things that you do there. In fact, the reality is that life-dominating sin puts out roots, just like that. I don't know if y'all can tell that's supposed to be roots going out there in all the different aspects or areas of your life. But when sin begins to affect what you do at work and affect your home and affect your job and affect so many different areas of life, it becomes a life-dominating type of sin. Now, what the Bible says about it is this. He says, you go make disciples of all nations, and when you do, you do it two ways. There's two things you do in making disciples. Number one, you baptize them, okay? And number two, you teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You know, a part of being a Christian, as big a part as being baptized, is to learn to do what God said do. I want you to think about that for just a minute. What would you do if you disagreed with God about something? Do you disagree with God about anything? There have been times I've disagreed with God about stuff. I felt like it was better to tell a lie than tell the truth, or I felt like it was better to uh, share some truth, or what we would call gossip, than not. What do you do when you disagree with God? Are you willing to do what God says anyway? You know, God may tell you you've got to forgive somebody you don't want to forgive. You disagree with God. You say, you know what? I don't need to forgive them. You don't know what they did. I don't have to forgive them. No, you don't have to. But God tells you to. And if you're going to claim that you follow God, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to have a relationship with your Creator, you want to be right with Him, then you have to choose to do what God says and not what you want, you see? And it's part of learning that. Now, when you deal with sin, there, is, there are three different battle fronts. You know, in any war, there are different fronts where the war is fought. And in a battle against sin, there are different fronts where war is fought. And I want to spend just a moment on this. There's the area of habit, and that's when a, a life... A sin is habitual and life-dominating. And when you fight a habit, I mean, that's something that you don't have to think about. It's just something that naturally happens. It's just something that you do. Uh, any sin can become that way. And when you first begin to really fight against a life-dominating sin in your life, it's going to be in the area of habit, probably. But you can change that. You move by fighting against that. One of the things you'll realize is before long, you're in the area of action where it's not habit. You don't naturally do it all the time. But there are still times you slip into it. Still times you fall into it. Still times you do what you shouldn't do. What you don't want to do now, but you still fall into it. But there's even a, a level or a battlefield before that, and that is the battlefield of thought. That's where it's in your mind, but you're not doing it. You ever have things in your mind that aren't right, and you know they're not right, and you're not going to do it, but boy, you like to think about doing it, and you'd like to do it, but you see, that's progress. That's not defeating the sin yet, but that's progress. And one of the points that I want to make with you in your life, and I want to really try to be as practical as we can today, when you struggle with sin in your life, if you've moved from the area of habit to action, 
That's progress. You've made progress. If you move from the area of fighting the actions to where you're fighting it in your mind, you're fighting the heart or the attitude of it, that's progress. You're making progress. And don't be discouraged and don't quit because, oh, I'm never going to be free of this. You may never be free to the point that you don't have to fight against it. But you can make genuine progress in your fight against sin in your life. Supposedly, and I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly Einstein said doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is insanity. Now, I've heard, seen that in books and stuff and heard it. You know that's true, right? Whether Einstein said it or not, it's true. If you hit your thumb with your hammer and it hurts, don't hit your thumb with your hammer anymore. It's going to keep hurting. If you keep doing the same thing over and over and over, if you and your spouse keep getting into a fight and you keep screaming and cussing at your spouse and it, the fight doesn't get better and you keep having the same fight over and over and it never gets better, do something different. Don't do the same thing over and over and over again. And whatever your temptation is, whatever your weakness is, whatever your sin problem is, do something different. You've got to change some things to make it different. Maybe you've got a problem with alcohol. And your problem with alcohol is, well, I don't ever intend to get drunk, but you know when I go with my friends and we go to the bar or we go to the club or wherever it is we go and whatever it is we do and I end up getting drunk, well, I don't want to get drunk anymore, I don't want to get drunk anymore, then quit going to the bar. Quit hanging out with those friends. You've got to make some changes. And the areas, there are three big areas you've got to change if you want to change sin in your life. You've got to change people, places, and things. You've got to change people. If you have a friend, no matter how dearly you love that friend, if that friend is making you, dragging you, bringing or encouraging you into sinfulness, they're not your friend. Not really. They're your friends the way the prodigal son's friends were his friends until he ran out of money. They're not really your friends if they try to get you to violate your relationship with your creator with your god how is that friendship well but i really like them you know we've been friends for years i know the bible says don't make friends with an angry person lest you learn his ways and it be a snare to your soul you have a friend who's angry they're just an angry person don't be friends with them anymore make a change you got to change people. One of the things I've learned through years and years of, of working with people who really get their lives caught up in sin is if they have one friend that they just won't give up, they'll never get out of it. They just won't. If they've got that one friend that is involved in that sin with them and they just aren't willing to give that up. You know, in order to be, to have the right friends... You've got to be willing to have the right enemies. Christians are going to have enemies when we stand up and do what's right. And you have to be willing to have the right enemies in order to have the right friends. You've got to change places. You've got to go different places than you've been going if you keep getting into trouble in the places that you go. If someone's got a problem with alcohol, when they go home, don't drive the route that takes them past the bar where they like to stop and drink. Drive a different route. Go somewhere else. You've got to change. If you've had an affair with someone you work with, you may have to quit your job and go to a different job. 
So you're not around them anymore. So that problem doesn't continue to exist in your life. You've got to change people. You've got to change places. You've got to change things. If you've got a problem with greed and you're greedy, you may need to get rid of your TV and quit watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and, and uh, where they remodel houses all the time and well, the Chip and Joanna show. I don't know what you call it. But, you know, th- if that's a problem to you, get rid of it. It's not worth being not right with God to have something you enjoy. Because I promise you this, You'll enjoy heaven a whole lot more than you're going to enjoy that TV show. You're going to enjoy heaven a whole lot more than you're going to enjoy that night out with your friends. You need to make changes in these specific areas. Another thing that's critical, I would say this is absolutely critical. Confession. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5. I've learned through many years of counseling in my own life, as long as you keep sin a secret, you'll never beat it. If it's a secret, you hold on to that. You think you're getting away with it. The devil will use that against you, and you won't beat it. You need need transparency. There needs to be someone in your life that you'll just be honest with. Someone in your life that's a, a faithful Christian that you'll say, you know what, I've got this problem. Pray with me. Pray for me. Help me. Ask me how I'm doing. There needs to be someone in your life that you're open with about your sin. We're to confess our sins to each other. Do you do that? Is there anyone that you know that you go to and you say, you know what, I've got this sin problem. I've got that. A lot of times we have put a term on that in our world. We call it accountability partners, right? We have accountability. Whether you want to call it accountability or not, the truth is God said to do it. You just need to be willing to confess your sin to someone else. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. You know, the, the heart of this verse is that right there. God is faithful. Do you believe God is faithful? I believe He's faithful. God is above all things faithful. He's above all men faithful. God is faithful. And part of His faithfulness is that He will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able. People use this excuse all the time. Well, I just couldn't take anymore. Yes, you could. If you're a Christian, you could take any more. Well, you know, I'd put up with it so long, it just—it couldn't go on anymore. Yes, it could, and you could take it if you're a Christian. Well, I, I just didn't see a way of escape. You know, that says he's also going to make a way of escape, right? And that's important. We want a way of escape because he says you'll, he'll make a way of escape so that you won't have to bear it. Okay? Is, is that what that verse says? Any of you all remember? Can you quote it? That's not exactly what that verse says. You know what the verse really says? It says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape 
that you may be able to bear it. You see, when I think of an escape, I think of getting away from something, right? Getting out of something. A way of escape. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, I'm going to make it so that you don't have to go through this problem. That's not his way of escape. His way of escape is, I'm going to make it so that you can get through this problem without committing sin. You don't have to commit sin. That's not the answer. That's never the answer. It's never okay to commit sin. And God will never put you in a situation where you have to commit sin to get through that situation. You don't. What He's going to do is He's going to make a way for you to bear that where you can deal with it. You can go through it without committing sin in your relationship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I said you got to change people, places, and things. The way you do that is you change your mind about people, places, and things. You change what you decide about people, places, and things. And you decide, you know what? I don't want that in my life, so I'm not hanging around with those people anymore. I don't want this to rule me, so I'm not going here anymore. I don't want this to continue to be a problem in my life, so I'm going to get rid of it where I don't have access to it, where it's not available to me anymore in my life. Renewing my, renewing my mind, changing my mind. Learn to hate sin. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. All of these sins, theft, you know why people steal? Because they think about stealing. Because it's in their heart. They're greedy. They want something. There's got to be a change. And you've got to learn in your life to hate the sin. You know, if someone has a problem, and I keep using alcohol because it's a very obvious one, and it's one we've all got some experience with, okay? But if you've got a problem with alcohol... And you go, no, I'm not going to get drunk anymore. I'm not going to get drunk anymore. But you just sit and you think, man, that was fun. Man, I love that stuff. Man, the, the taste of that, whatever it was. that I. And if you sit and you think about that, and you still love that in your heart all the time, and you speak about in your heart about how wonderful it was and how fun it was and how good it was, you won't escape it. What you have to do is you have to learn to hate the sin. You have to maximize the consequences of sin. You know, in the book of Job, Job, the Bible says, was a righteous man who hated evil. Do you hate evil? Do you despise evil? Well, I despise it when it hurts me, <laughs> right? I hate evil when someone cheats me, when someone steals from me, I hate it. But do you hate evil? Or do you just hate when you get hurt by evil? If you hate evil, you'll hate evil even in your own life. You want to get rid of evil. You know, no one likes to be betrayed. You ever been betrayed by a friend? No one likes that. We, hate, we can hate that terribly, can't we? But it's different to hate it in someone else when they betray me than to hate it in me when I betray someone else, you see? Those are different things. It's different to hate betrayal and hate that I got hurt because somebody betrayed me. Those are different things, you see. 
and we choose in our heart, we have to learn to hate the sin. The Bible says the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, purity in heart, the Bible says, guard your heart, for out of it come the issues of life. If you expose yourself and your heart to wickedness, to immorality, to anger and lust and all these kinds of, whatever the sin is, you keep exposing yourself to this and you're around it and you're around it, it infiltrates your heart, it hardens your heart and it'll change who you are and you won't like who you wake up being from a pure heart. That means you... You protect your heart. means there's not evil lurking in your heart. There's not a desire for bad. And the way you do that is you quit exposing yourself to those things that are going to affect your heart negatively. Another thing, and I mentioned this last time I preached, but I've really thought a lot about this over the last couple of months. And it really makes a difference with me, and I want to remind you of it. Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You ever think about God? You think about Jesus? You know, this is the season, right? And Jesus is the reason for the season, right? And we get all up in arms if Home Depot won't call it Christmas and just wants to call it holiday season or something like that. But you know, think about Jesus in heaven right now. He's surrounded by a hundred million angels. And they just can't stop themselves from bowing before Him and bowing before Him. Because He's so holy. You ever think about how holy God is? How holy Christ is? Makes a difference to me to realize that He is so holy and He is so righteous and He is God. And you know what? If I disagree with Him, I'm wrong. Because He's God and He's holy and I'm wrong if I don't like what He says. That's just the way it is. I'm not right if I'm not in alignment with God and Jesus Christ. The Bible says when you offer a blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. These people, as we talked about last time, they were offering God... They're lambs, but they were crippled lambs. They were offering God just the leftovers that they had in their life. You know, they've got all these good lambs, and they've got that old crippled one over there. Give that one to God, you know. Sacrifice that one. He ain't any good anyway. Is that what you give to God? Giving God the best that you've got. Giving Him your best attention. Giving Him your best time. Giving Him your best, your your most valuable possessions give it give those things to God because he's worthy of it he says you know what I have no pleasure in you giving me your leftovers God is not interested in us doing that and if you want to change sin in your life 
It helps me to realize this. It helps me to remember that a half-hearted effort is not going to satisfy God. Going to church occasionally or, uh, you know, saying a prayer occasionally or even singing a song occasionally is not going to satisfy God. It's a lifetime, a lifestyle commitment. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. One of the things you need to know as you struggle against sin is to just don't ever stop. Don't ever quit. One of the things they talked about at the funeral of David Fleming yesterday was things that had knocked him down in his life. Talked about when his father died when he was seven years old. And what a blow that was to a young man. But he got back up and he kept going. And they talked about many things that, you know, bad, hard, difficult things that happened in his life. And the difference in a hero, the difference in somebody who really faithfully gets to the end of the race is not someone that never falls down. It's somebody that always gets back up. And as you struggle against sin, you may be sitting here right now going, wow, you know, now that you mention it, I haven't been doing too good. I've been doing pretty bad, actually. Then get back up. Just get back up and keep going. Don't ever stop. Don't ever quit getting back up and trying again. You'll reap if you do not lose heart. When you feel like quitting, remember why you started. In Hebrews, he says, Recall the former days, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. These people in Hebrews were thinking about quitting. He says, You want to not quit? Remember the former days. Think about why you started. Why did you come to Jesus in the first place? Do you remember when you obeyed the gospel? Do you remember when you became a Christian? You remember that, Kent? I remember that. Why did you do that? We came to Christ because of what He offered, what He had done. Remember that. That should move and direct and motivate you 50 years after you come to Christ. Because the reason hasn't changed, has it? The reason to serve God is the same. The reason to serve God is not, oh, you'll have a good life here and no bad stuff. That's not the reason to serve God. The reason to serve God is you're going to die and you're going to face this holy God and your only hope is salvation in Jesus. So when you feel like quitting, you feel like saying, you know, I'm done. Remember why you started the walk in the first place. So what do you do if there's been a big relapse in your life? Well, we relapse for a lot of reasons, and I don't, I'm just going to list these briefly. The deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you. It'll make you think there's no, well, it's just a little thing. It's no big deal. And next thing you know, you're neck deep in it. It will deceive you that way. Uh, the deceitfulness of distance. This is a really big deal. Now, maybe we'll talk about this more in depth some other time. But, you know, the further away from something happening you get the less important it seems to be, right? The less, the less big of a deal it is. Now, if we just had the big fight last night and my sin came out last night, it seems huge. But if that was 20 years ago, I'm going, well, you know, it was a long time ago. And it can be deceitful. You can think that, well, you know, I've, I've made it. And distance is very deceitful. Deceitfulness of pride, Pride, thinking that you're okay. Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You be careful. The deceitfulness of false repentance. 
False repentance is when you don't hate the sin. What you do is you hate the consequences of the sin. You hate that you got caught. You hate that somebody got hurt. That's not genuine repentance. It's false repentance. All of these are reasons that we can fall back into sin. So how do you help? The funeral that I went to yesterday. Jerry Lowry. Some of y'all know Jerry. He's an elder in the church down there where David attended. Jerry is a... Jerry's a good guy. He's a close friend of mine. He goes to Nigeria with me. Jerry gave the eulogy. And the story that he told at the eulogy was very touching to me. He said, you know, when I was a kid, he said, my home was not a good home. My parents weren't faithful Christians. and He said it was a very, very hard, difficult thing. My life was chaos. And he said, occasionally we would go to church at Morning Glory, which is down in Pasadena, where the Flemings went to church. And he said, when we'd go to church, there was a family there that had all these boys. And he said, I kind of like the boys, and I like to hang out with the boys. And he said, David Fleming, the man that's in that box right there, invited me to go eat with them. He invited me to hang out with them. And he said, when, when this was happening... I want you to know, he said, I was a guy that had a big chip on one shoulder and a big insecurity on the other. And he said, that was not good. He said, I was a bad influence on his kids. I was a long-haired, hippie-type, rebellious kid. And he said, I look back at it now and I say, why on earth would David Fleming want to expose his children to someone like me at that time in my life? Well, the answer is he loved me. He cared. He cared about me, not just his own. But he was willing to take a risk and to do something that was unpleasant and difficult. And, you know, David, I'm sure, Jerry didn't say this, but I'm sure when he invited Jerry to go out and he would, he paid for Jerry's food. Dumb thug, kid. But he paid for his food. Why? Because he cared about him. And he wanted it to be different. You know what the result is today? The result didn't happen that fast, but the result today is that Jerry's an elder in the church. He's got a son that's an evangelist. He's got his other kids. They're all faithful and active and involved in serving God. All because one guy cared enough to take a risk and to invite him into his home. To invite him over to be around his family. You won't help if you don't care. You've got to care. You've got to be willing to make a sacrifice for those who need some help. And yes, it's going to be a nuisance, and it's going to cost you money, and it's going to cost you time, and there's going to be risk. But that's the only way that we make a difference with people. You've got to be patient. Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Patience is hard, and... I don't know if it's a function of getting older. Maybe, maybe so. But it seems like I get less patient with people sometimes than I used to. I don't, wanna, I don't have time for them. You know, you're going to serve God, then serve Him. If you're not, then quit bothering me. And you know, that's, that's just not right. We're to be patient with all people. I've needed patience in time in my life. People have had to be patient with me. 
We be patient with people. All people. Let's don't just, it's not just a, hey, fish or cut bait. Now, I know, I'm not saying there's not a time to fish or cut bait, but I am saying that God tells us that we need to be patient with all people. If you want to help someone, you can't help them if you're not patient. You just can't help them long term. If you want to help somebody, you need to realize that they may be afraid. Now, that's a picture of walking around some Machu Picchu or I, I don't know how you say it, but one of those places up on a mountain somewhere. That would scare me to death <laughs> because I'm, I'm scared of heights. That would scare me to death to walk on that. And I'm going to tell you, if you walked with me on this, you'd have to be a little bit patient with me because I'm not going to go, hey, let's go and run right down that thing. Not me. You know, when, if you have lived your whole life and you haven't had a day without alcohol in 20 years, it might be scary to go a day without alcohol, you know? If you've lived your life and you've held a grudge and an anger at somebody, it may be frightening to go talk to that person face to face and deal with and forgive that person for the sin that they've committed against you. It's not easy. Scary. Be patient with people who are struggling and it's hard to do what God wants them to do. They may be discouraged. That's a picture of a guy trying to climb up out of a a hole out of a well. You can see way up high, but I don't tell you, it'd be hard to get out of that thing. You talk to someone who's tried to change over and over and over, and they failed over and over and over. It's not time for a Nike commercial. Just do it. That doesn't work. It takes more than that. And you have to remember and realize that people can be very discouraged. Just kicking them because they're not doing what's right is not the right answer. It doesn't help. You have to be patient with people. They may be afraid. They may be discouraged. Relapse doesn't mean starting over. If you've done well against sin and then you fail and you fall back into the sin, it doesn't mean you've got to start over. It means starting again where you fell. You know, when you run a race, Carrie and Jacob run these 5K races, if they fall down, they don't have to go back to the starting line and start over and run the race again. They just get up where they fell and take off running again. And if you've had sin in your life and you've made great strides against it, but then you slip and you fall down, don't get all discouraged and I'll never, I've got to start. You don't have to start over. You get up where you were. You're not where you used to be. You've made progress, but you get back up and you keep going. Have patience with people. Remind them of that. Help them know and see and understand that. That this struggle with sin is real in our lives. And it's a struggle that, uh, that we can have success against. The Bible says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. He said you need to restore them. The idea is not just to get them told, you know what, you better straighten up or don't let the door hit you. That's not the way God's people respond to one another. We respond by restoring them. And that takes time. It takes effort. It takes them taking advantage of you sometimes. It takes patience with people to restore them. 
Sometimes it requires you to confront someone. The Apostle Paul said, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Did you know there have been times in my life where someone withstood me to the face because I was to be blamed? And they were right about it, and I needed it. I didn't like it, but they were right, and I needed it. Sometimes you have to withstand someone to the face. You have to go to them and say, hey, brother, sister, this is not right. You need to change this. Things need to be different. Okay? Sometimes that's required to help someone. And on some, have compassion making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Some people you can go and sit down very easy and very kind and very compassionate and say, listen, you know, this is, this is a bad choice. You're messing up here. You need... And some people respond well to that. Other people... You have to save with fire. Stop it! Hope I didn't scare the kids. Sometimes you have to get in someone's face and say, Stop it! You know what you're risking? You're going to lose your soul over this. This is what God tells us to do. Now, is that comfortable? Most, most of us, that's not comfortable. We don't like confrontation. We like to avoid confrontation at all costs sometimes. But you know, if we love each other, we won't avoid confrontation at all costs. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. You've got to be willing to... Exercise church discipline sometimes. You know, this congregation believes in that. We do that. We believe in following what God says. And if somebody is involved in open, unrepentant sin, God demands that we take an action against that and not just allow that to continue in the body of Christ. That's an ultimate response. But if he will not hear, if he refuses to hear, if he even refuses to hear, the way you know to move from step to step in that, he says, first go privately, then bring one or two more with you, and then bring it before the church. The way you know to move to the next step in every case is not, well, it's been long enough. No, it's if they won't hear you, if they quit trying. If you go to talk to them and they say, get out of here, we're not changing. That's when you move to that next step and that next step. But the goal, even in church discipline, is salvation. He says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He said, you'll save a soul from death. That's the goal. Even, you know, I, when I was younger, church discipline was never done because it had been so abused in some places. And people used church discipline as an axe, as a hammer to control other people. That's not what it's for. It's to save people. Just like disciplining your children is not so you get to beat the kid. The purpose of it is not even to remove an irritation from you. The purpose of disciplining a child is so the child corrects their ways so that they discipline themselves and they are a righteous child. And church discipline is the exact same thing. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's always the goal. That's the purpose. That's the reason that if I'm wrong, you need to speak to me 
because you want to save my soul, because you care about me. And just smiling and shaking my hand and saying, good to see you, doesn't do that for me. What does that for me is you speaking to me about what matters in my life. Forgiveness is the goal. You ought rather to forgive and comfort him. This is the guy that right here he told him to kick out of the church. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he says, You ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. They kicked him out of the church, and he repented. So he says, Welcome him back. And reaffirm your love to him. Let him know you love him just like before. It's not, okay, you had your chance and you're gone. Final thought. My final thought is this. When you deal with sin in your life and you're struggling against it, you need to remember that we serve a real God who has real answers to real problems. It's not just some religious thing we do at church on Sunday. He's a real God. He exists. He's real. And He's surrounded by millions of angels worshiping Him every minute of every day. He's holy. And He's got real answers to problems. He has real, genuine answers. And His answers are not answers that won't work. They do work. I've seen it in my life and in the life of countless others. God's answers are real and they work. And they're real answers for real problems. They're not just real answers for theological arguments. They're not just real answers for who's the most religious. They're answers for real problems. There's real answers for marriage trouble and for moral trouble and for any problem that you have that deals with spiritual matters. God has genuine answers about how you can change those things. Now, the purpose of my sermon this morning has been, number one, to encourage you. That's the main thing. If you've struggled against sin, I want to encourage you. If you've relapsed, if you've gotten weak, if you haven't held the line, I want to encourage you to get up and fight. Hold the line and be different. Number two, it's been to encourage all the rest of us that if you know someone who's struggling, be patient with them, but don't just ignore it. Sin is a real matter. It's a real issue. And number three, to ask you if there's something not right in your life, now's the time to get that right. Now's the day. Today is the day of salvation. And you can go home with a renewed effort. There, it, the elders and myself and others here can counsel and work with you and help you Make real, genuine changes in your life. Not so it pleases me, but so you're right with God. So when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you're not afraid to pray, or you're not, I don't want to think about that. But that you lay your head on your pillow and you can talk to God as your Father, and you know He loves you and you're trying to serve Him, and you know you're right with Him, and you know He'll forgive you for the failings of the day. You can have that, but it takes your choice to stand up and serve Him and to fight and to be involved, engaged in this battle of this life, whatever battle you particularly are fighting. If there's any spiritual way we can assist you, we do offer a song of invitation if you'll make that need known while we stand and sing.